In our country, we are not strangers to frivolous lawsuits. I researched a few of them this week, and this is what the internet yielded. Mind you, not, most of these cases were not won, but nonetheless, they were cases in the court of law. An officer in North Carolina sued Starbucks for $750,000 because the coffee was hot. A Florida woman sued FedEx for tripping over a package left on her doorstep. A few years ago, Colorado inmates sued the NFL for $88 billion over the 2015 Cowboys playoff loss. I believe that was the one with Des Bryant's catch. They thought it was a catch, no catch. A Pennsylvania nursing student failed a course twice and sued the school for not helping her with her anxiety. This is my favorite. An eight-year-old New York boy was sued by his aunt for giving her a, quote, careless hug. And lastly, a man sued a dry cleaner for $67 million because they lost his pants. Tried to sue the pants off of them. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't resist. That was bad. There's a little bit of what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Is the believers in Corinth are having these kind of silly little disputes, and instead of solving them together or within the community of the church, they're taking them before the Corinthians, before worldly people without the Spirit. And so Paul is reminding them that they are in Christ, that they are redeemed, that they are one community, that they are to live as those who are washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Christ Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. And he says, as a consequence of that, you need to be able to maintain unity, you need to be able to properly reflect who Jesus is to the surrounding culture. And so he exhorts them today to be the church, to judge, to make wise judgments. If you've been here, we've kind of been dealing with this theme of judgment since the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, you remember on one hand, Paul says, I don't care how you judge me because you're judging me according to worldly standards. Uh, don't judge me. Uh, I'm going to be faithful to the Lord. And then in chapter 5, he kind of is frustrated with the Corinthians. He says, why aren't you judging? This man is sleeping with his mom or stepmom, remember? And he says, this is a grave sin. Even sinners think this is sin. Remove him from you. Make a judgment. And then today he's going to continue that theme and say, judge these small matters within your own community. Make these judgments for the sake of the outside world, those non-Christians as you witness to them. Make these judgments for the sake of those who are inside the church to help maintain unity and Christ-likeness, to help model repentance and forgiveness. And make these judgments for those who are self-deceived to try and help them see the truth about their standing before the Lord. Judgment can be a little bit of a complex idea in Scripture. Uh, a lot of times we come up against verses where we're told not to judge and then other verses that do tell us to judge. And I think Jesus gets the balance really right and gives great explanation to this in John 7.24 when he says this, Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. 
See, there is a type of judgmentalism that is forbidden to Christians. We're not to judge based upon worldly standards or what people look like. We're not to be judgmental. There's also another kind of judgment that's required of Christians, one that is righteous and accords with the wisdom of God. And that judgment is to be exercised within our community as a church. And so with that in mind, we want to try and learn what Paul means in, this, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. And we want to try to learn what it means for us to be the church and to judge. Let's pray, and then we will get started. Father, many of us have come this morning with clenched fists, thinking about things from this week that have frustrated us, minor things that that matter little in light of eternity. Pray that you would help us to open our hands this morning to let go of those things which are frustrating us, that we might receive a message from you, that we might once again take hold of those wonderful truths of the gospel, that we have been reconciled to you by the work of Christ on the cross, and that what lies before us ultimately is happiness. We thank you that you are good and that you have spoken to us. And we ask now that you would help us to submit ourselves to your word. Send your spirit to us that we might listen well. Send your spirit to me that I might speak well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's look at verse 1 in chapter 6. Paul writes, actually I'm going to start in verse 12 and then we'll go into chapter 6, chapter 5, verse 12, and then we're going to roll right into 6. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous? and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as yourself judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers, as it is to have legal disputes against one another, is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do this to brothers and sisters. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, 
idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, no greedy people, no drunkards, no verbally abusive people or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I want to hang verse 11, that last verse, over top of all of these verses for us. It's Actually, you can think of it like a foundation. It's the foundation upon which Paul is going to build all of these exhortations. In all of Paul, being always precedes doing. He, he wants you to know who you are because what you do comes from who you are. And what he's going to tell the Corinthians, what he's reminding them of here, is that they are Christ, that they have been washed They have been sanctified. They have been justified. Uh, Washed uh, here, it just means a cleansing from sin, some of the the filth of sin. If you think about if you went outside and played in the mud, you would have mud all over. You go into the shower and you get cleansed from that mud. You get washed. You you washed it away. You sometimes get dirt underneath your nails. I don't usually, I don't work outside a lot, but some of you even have nail brushes at your house. You've got to get that filth out of there. What Paul's saying, you've had the filth of sin removed from you. You've been cleaned. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Been washed. He's saying you've been sanctified, and this is to be uh, distinct from the process of sanctification that we sometimes talk about, right? We always say sanctification is becoming in practice what God has declared us to be in Christ, which is holy. Yes, we're all in that process of sanctification. But when Paul uses the word sanctified here, he's talking about something that's already been done. He's using it in the same sense that he used it back in chapter 1. He's saying you have been set apart, right? That's what the meaning of the word is here. You've been set apart to holiness, set apart as God's special people. It's something that's already been done. And so you can think of it like this. Uh, lots of you probably still do this practice where you have everyday clothes or play clothes, and then you have church clothes, right? So your church clothes become set apart from the rest of your wardrobe. Holy in some ways, right? They're, they're, they're sanctified. They're set apart. That's what the word means. Paul is saying you have been cleansed by Jesus. You've been set apart as the people of Jesus. And you've been justified before God in the name of of Jesus. Justified simply means to be declared righteous. Right? Romans 8 reminds us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is kind of the negative aspect of justification. It's as if you were a prisoner and you were in jail and all of a sudden somebody came along and said, not guilty. Free from condemnation. Or forgiven. There's another aspect of justification, though, that I think we often miss, and that's the positive side of justification. Well, when we're united with Christ, we're not only forgiven of our sins, not only forgiven because of our wrongdoing, but we are also credited with the righteousness of Christ. You understand that? We don't get any of the credit for all the stuff that we've done wrong. Jesus takes that for us on the cross and is punished beneath the wrath of God. 
for us in our place, and instead we get the righteousness of Christ. So that not only are we forgiven prisoners, but we become celebrated heroes. It's as if if Jesus won the Medal of Honor, and instead of having it hung around his neck, it is hung around our necks. We get the honor that Christ is due. That's how God is able to delight in you. That's how God is able to sing over you. Because of your union with Christ. Paul is writing to those to those who have, have faith in Christ, and he's saying, you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. And so live like it. He's exhorting the Corinthians to be what you are. There's some remnants in, his, uh, in this from last week. If you remember verses 6 through 8, he has that analogy about removing the evil person from among them because you're not leavened bread, you're unleavened bread. And we said uh, it was a little bit like kudzu. If you get that stuff in your garden, it takes over everything and strangles the life out of plants. We said this is how sin works in the life of individual believers as well as the church corporately, that sin strangles and it takes over, and so it has to be dealt with. It has to be cut out right away. And Paul's exhortation at that point, and I think here too, was to be what you are, to remove sin from you, to kill sin. And so he's, he's telling the Corinthians all of these exhortations, all of these questions uh, that are rhetorical for a teaching purpose, he, he's exhorting them to live in light of their union with Christ. He wants them to be what they are. And, and as we've already said, the Corinthians have shown a lack of understanding about what it means to judge well, right? They judged Paul wrongly according to worldly standards in chapter 4. They didn't judge the man who was sleeping with his mom, stepmom, whatever she was, girlfriend with mom in the title in chapter 5. That They ignored that. And here in chapter 6, they're not judging again. And Paul's saying you need to make these judgments. It's foolish for you not to. If you have a dispute against one another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? I love this language. How dare you, right? Like that, that's how intense he is. He's, he's frustrated. Like a, like a parent with a child who does something wrong for the hundredth time. How dare you? So you take these, these matters before people that do not have the Holy Spirit people that are less equipped than you are to deal with these matters. He's saying, for you to take these matters before unspiritual people is akin to a married couple taking their marital issues before a toddler, right? These folks are just not equipped with the Spirit to make these right judgments. Furthermore, don't you know that the saints will judge the world. It's important here to know that saints is not, uh, not like a Catholic understanding of saints where it's like two or three people ever and they're like super good. Saints here, he's used it to refer to them if you remember all the way back in chapter 1, is the Corinthian church. It's anybody who has faith in Christ. It's anybody that has been made holy through the imputed righteousness of Jesus. A saint is tantamount to a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? Don't you know, Christian, that you will one day with Christ judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? 
He's building his argument. You're, you're going to be part of this greater judgment, so you should be able to judge these lesser things. And then he, he goes, next level. Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Um, what that means precisely, if you were waiting for me to give you uh, some really precise definition of what it means for uh, Christians to one day judge angels, I'm sorry to disappoint. I don't know. I don't know. Paul's, Paul's, uh, it's going to happen. There are a couple places in Scripture that speak to it. However, what exactly that looks like, I don't know. But it's an awesome privilege. I mean, it is an indescribably great privilege that one day, as a Christian, you will sit with Christ in judgment over those who have rejected Christ along with Christ, and you will judge angels. I don't know what it looks like, but it sounds incredible. What a privilege to share in the work of Jesus. Paul is using this future, this future truth, this eschatological reality to motivate. He's using the future to motivate the Corinthians to action now. He's saying, in the future, you're going to be judging the people in this world and you're going to even judge angels. Therefore, because you have the Holy Spirit, because you are one with God, you are well equipped to judge these tertiary, small, and petty issues among yourselves. You can take care of it. Paul is arguing that the people most qualified to settle disputes within the Corinthian church are the Corinthians themselves. Still, though, we see uh, from the context here that the Corinthians are very caught up in the world, right? They're not imitating Paul, but they're imitating the culture around them. You've got a problem, you take it to the court system. And Paul is trying to establish within their community a love and a respect and an honor for the church. He's saying utilize the church before you go running off to civil magistrates. I love verse 5 is perhaps my favorite. Uh, With biting sarcasm, Paul writes, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one, no one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? These are those who have had this problem, right? We've seen this language of the wise and the foolish throughout 1 Corinthians, and, and, and wisdom is upheld. This great Sophia wisdom is this great attribute, and everybody wants to be wise, and they've called Paul a fool. And he's saying, if you're so wise... If you guys are those who are reigning as kings, you're so brilliant, can't just one of you figure out these problems? Like, isn't somebody among you able to do this? Not one? I love it. He says, verse 6, he says, Instead, since we can't find anybody wise enough to make these judgments for you, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. This is not a good look. Right? That's what Paul means. It's not a good look for Christians to fight with their brothers and sisters in Christ and then to take that fight out of the parking lot. It's not great that it started in the parking lot, but it's not, it's not good for them to take it out of the parking lot and into the court system because now what they've done is they've diminished the reputation of Jesus. They are witnessing to the world that, hey, I am a Jesus follower and you can look at my life and you will see what Jesus is like. And the Gentiles and those around them, I say Gentiles, but they're in the church, the, the, 
The world looks at them and is saying, if Jesus is like that, I don't want anything to do with him. You guys are fighting over silly things. It doesn't make any sense. It's not a good look for us to bicker and fight. It makes people feel awkward. And I imagine it makes people feel awkward in court too. Have you ever been around somebody that's been fighting in public next to you? Like, this is weird. It's not good. It's a bad look. And when we bicker and fight with one another and we take this into courts rather than solving these issues ourselves, again, these are trivial issues, instead of solving these issues ourselves, we're, we're dre- it's as if we are dressing the bride of Christ in sweatpants and Ugg boots rather than the finest gown. I know sweatpants and Ugg boots are popular, but let's face it, ladies, not the greatest look in the world. We're, we're diminishing Christ's beauty. We want to adorn Christ by godly living, by showing people a picture of heaven on earth. Right? The church is to be a display of God's glory. And when you battle your neighbor in a civil magistrate, that doesn't make Jesus look beautiful. It diminishes his glory. And so Paul is saying, for the sake of your witness before unbelievers, make these judgments among yourself. Find somebody to help settle these disputes that you are having with one another. If you have a problem and you've gone to your brother and your sister and you can't find reconciliation, employ an elder, employ another brother or sister to help you solve the issue. Be at peace with one another. Don't take your junk into the public square. It reflects poorly upon the Lord. I do think it's important at this juncture to note that Paul is not saying there's not ever a time to go to court. There there may be. uh, And additionally, there's also times where the church is just not equipped to handle certain things. Um, There's a difference between crime and sin. That might be a reductionistic way of looking at it, but it helped me conceptually to think about this. Uh, some crimes are sin, and most all, but not all sins are crimes, right? And so if you think about it set up in your, in your head, um, if you call 911 and you report, uh, dispatch picks up and you say, it's really important. Jane has been gossiping again. Get over here right now. No one's coming. You haven't reported a crime. You've reported a sin. Even for uh, more grotesque sins, right? The police aren't coming for adultery or the report of a pornography addiction or because you find that your neighbor is really, really greedy. Cops aren't coming. Falls under the realm of sin. In the church, well, we, we deal with sin. That's in our realm of authority to adjudicate. These are matters that we can bring to the church and work through. Whereas crimes, well, that, that falls under the state's authority, right? We want to balance our reading of 1 Corinthians 6 with Romans 13. Right? Romans 13:1 says, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Yes, there is a realm in which there are times in which we need to take advantage of the authority established by God to deal with such things. The state has a role to play. So, 
sometimes this passage is abused and misused to make it seem as if the church has, is green-lighting, uh, concealing sin. I'll tell you what I mean. The expectation that some people have in light of this text is that if you come to me and tell me, hey, Justin, I killed a guy a couple weeks ago. I don't think anybody knows he's missing yet. Body's in my backyard. Trying that Breaking Bad stuff, going to dissolve the body. Don't tell him. I feel really bad. I'm repenting. I'm not going to kill anybody else anymore. But let's just keep this between us. Like people have this idea that anything they tell the pastor can't, is, that's secret, that's unlocked. Uh, if you have that idea, I want to get you to get rid of it right now. I'm, I'm, I'm calling the police, right? We're not dealing with your murder in-house. A crime has been committed. So when crimes are committed, we want to make sure that they go through the proper channels and that justice is served. Yes, if you committed murder, I'll walk, I'm not going to stop being your friend. Like, I want to walk with you through that, especially if you're repenting. Try to help you find Christ and grace and forgiveness. But I'm still sending you to the police. Likewise, if someone comes and reports domestic abuse to me, I'm not going to say, we'll deal with this in-house, go home, and continue being abused by your spouse. No, I'm calling the police. We have to use wisdom in the matters that we deal with. In in matters of sin, bring those. That's what we're meant to deal with as a church. We don't need to have the civil magistrate solving tiny little sinful disputes between us. We want to judge for the sake of those outside the church to preserve our witness. And a second, I guess, corollary to that is that the courts aren't all filled up with silly civil cases that we've created among ourselves. We also want to judge for the sake of those inside the church, for the sake of our relational unity. Verse 6 again. Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers, as it is to have legal disputes against one another, is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Here's Paul's point. Relationship is more important than being right. What have you been willing to destroy for the sake of being right? What relationships do you have rifts in because you want to insist upon justice because you were right and the other person was wrong? An old pastor of mine shared a a story uh, about two guys and we'll call one John and the other Bob. And both hardy Texans, uh, native Texans, and so they, they loved trucks. And John had, was, was not living in Texas any longer, and he'd flown in for a conference. He got off the plane, and Bob came to pick him up in his brand-new pickup truck. And so Bob and John immediately spoke about the wonderful merits of trucks, how wonderful it was to have that, that new truck smell. And that new truck shine, they exulted in uh, the glory of Bob's new truck. And Bob 
Bob took John and dropped him off at his conference for the week. Bob had a great time. And then it came the time for Bob to pick John up again. And as Bob pulled up to the curb, John was startled, shocked. Something had happened. The, the new truck had a giant dent in it, some scratches down the side. He got into the, the vehicle. He said, Bob, what happened to the truck? He quickly explained that his neighbor's basketball post had fallen over and slammed into it while it was in the driveway and that his neighbor wasn't willing to take responsibility for the damages. To which John replied, How are you going to make them pay for it? John thought for a moment and then replied this way. My wife and I, we spoke about it. We talked about maybe getting a lawyer. But then we decided that I could be right, or I could be in relationship with my neighbor. That I could destroy my relationship on the basis of taking him to court and getting what is mine, or I could continue to have a relationship with him. And so we've decided not to do anything. After all, a truck's not really a truck until it has a few dents and scratches in it. Mine just got to be initiated a little bit early. I mean, I love that line. I can be right, or I can be in relationship with my neighbor. Christian, what's more important to you? Being right or being in relationship with your neighbor? What relationships do you have that need to be restored? What relationships do you have that are broken and, and marred because of your insistence upon being right? How many of you in your marriages, instead of repenting and, and reconciling or simply letting love cover a multitude of sins and being gracious, have put distance between yourself and your spouse, gone into your man cave or out into your garage, found some yard work to do, maybe a reason to be at the office a little bit longer, to hide from your spouse so that they can have enough time to realize that you were right and they were wrong and that they can come and apologize to you. What's more important? Being right, being vindicated, or being in relationship? I wonder who here in our church family that you smile at superficially but underneath your hating in your heart because you were right and they were wrong in something that happened long ago and you've never let go of it. Paul says, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. It is a defeat for you to even end up in the situation where you've had to go to court. It is a defeat for you when you cannot reconcile a relationship between your brothers and sisters by using or utilizing the resources of the church. We need to be those who are quick to forgive and quick to repent. We are sinners. This should go on all the time. 
We want to make judgments for the sake of those outside of the church by keeping our kerfuffles inside the church and dealing with the sin here among our other family members. We want to judge for those inside the church for the sake of you and I, that we maintain unity, that we would function like a family does. When there's problems in the household, don't just move out. Like if Chelsea and I have a disagreement, not that such things happen, but, but if we hypothetically had a disagreement, like we're not going to court to, to figure out, you know, who took the last eggs or because, you know, she ate my sandwich and that was wrong. That happened last night, just saying. <laughs> uh, like I'm not, I'm taking it to the church right now. <laughs> that threw me off a little bit. Uh, <laughs> we're keeping those things in-house and we're judging sin together as a family for the sake of our reputation as a family and for the sake of our unity as a family. We want to forgive quickly and we want to repent quickly. Moreover, it's, we see that it's better to be wronged than to do wrong. Paul's kind of saying, you've been cheated and so you've started to cheat one another. Like you sin in response to sin. Isn't it better to just be wronged and to let love cover a multitude of sins and to still continue to press into relationship with one another rather than go to court and demand your rights? I wonder what our disagreements as a church would look like if we asked ourselves this question. Am I doing what is best for the church? I wonder how that would change our behavior. Is this what's best for the church? I think instead, too often, the question we ask is, what's best for me? How can I get what I want? How can I get what I'm entitled to? But that attitude is not the way of the cross. It's not the way of Christ Jesus Jesus did not demand his rights on the way to the cross, but instead, as a sheep is silent before the one who is slaughtering it, he said nothing. 1 Peter 2, 19-24 says this, For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you are called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving, you an leaving for you an example that you should follow in His steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in His mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus endured wrong for your good. Why would it be a bad thing to endure wrong for the good of someone else? Why not just let love cover a multitude of sins instead of demanding your rights, demanding to be vindicated? 
better to be wronged and endure wrongdoing for the good of others than to do wrong. We want to judge matters inside of the church, even if it's on an individual level. And you, you know what? Um, John wronged me, but he was having a bad week. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let love cover that sin for the sake of unity. As a church, we want to make judgments for the sake of those outside of the church, for the sake of our witness to them, for the sake of those inside of the church, for the sake of our unity as a church. And we also want to make judgments for the sake of the self-deceived. Look at verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So, so here's what's happening. The Corinthians are not changing their lives. There are people that are living among them the same way they lived before they met Jesus. And here's the thing. You can't meet Jesus and not change. Paul is saying these are lives, not lapses, right? It's not, it's not a, a momentary uh, greediness that cropped up in your heart. This is something that defines you. He's saying you are either marked by the stain of sin in your life or you are marked by the purity of Christ in your life. How you live is going to signify what you believe. And if you believe in Christ... You will be purifying yourself as he is pure. You will be pursuing righteousness. You won't continue on in your sexual immorality. Right? That gets anybody, that's any kind of sexual sin. That's any sex outside of heterosexual marriage. He's saying, you who are sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven if you continue in this unrepentant sin. He's saying, you who look at pornography, habitually and unrepentantly. You will not get into heaven if you continue in this habitual and unrepentant sin. Those who participate in this do not inherit the kingdom of God. Idolaters, those of you who love things more than Jesus, you treasure something in your heart more than Christ, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. On and on the list goes. Thieves, greedy people, those of you who love money more than people, Use people to get money. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul wants us to know that Aphrodite and Jesus cannot coexist. Jesus doesn't share the throne of your life with anyone else. He is commander-in-chief. He is the king. And he demands repentance. Don't deceive yourself and think that you can be a greedy Christian. Yeah, I follow Jesus, but I'm still I'm a greedy Christian. That's an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. Yeah, I follow Jesus, but I'm a sexually immoral Christian. No. It's one or the other. You, you can't say, well, I had this sin, and then I met Jesus. And then I said, well, what happened? Well, nothing. I've just held on to this sin. No, if you meet Jesus, things change. Your life changes changes. Christians are not perfect. We're not perfect. But we're always changing. That's what marks the Christian. Paul's not calling us to perfection, but into progressively changing. 
Those who know Christ are always changing, changing, changing. Repenting, repenting, repenting. You remember as a child uh, playing out, if you're from the north, playing out in the snow? You'd stay outside there until your hands, you know, your fingers, hands, toes just got as cold as I'll get out. You stayed out there until you just couldn't stand it anymore, and then, you, you know, you, if you were like me, you'd run into the house, and you'd get under a bunch of blankets or next to the fire, and slowly but surely your body would be made right. Like, the feeling would come back into your fingertips. You'd start to feel your lips again and know how chapped they got. Like, the, the snot that had hardened to your face became liquid again. Becoming a Christian is a little bit like coming inside out of the cold. You begin, there's, there's change happening over that period of time. You were frozen, but now the decisive action to come into the house has been taken, and so eventually your body is going to warm completely and be made right. And over time, as you're heating up, the, the, the feeling comes back into your fingertips. As you walk with Christ, your feelings will become more Christ-like. Your affections will be informed by Christ. Everything you do, even things with your body, will become more Christ-honoring. You're going to be changing. Changing into the person that Christ has made you, has called you to be. Maybe a Another great example of this would be the prodigal sons, right? The, the younger brother, the irreligious brother, demands his inheritance but doesn't want the love of the father and goes off and squanders the father's wealth, says, my father's slaves have it better than I do. I'll just go and ask my dad to make me a servant and pay me like a tiny little stipend. And he's on the way back and he doesn't even get the words out of his mouth and the father has the best robe on his back, a finger, or a finger on his ring, a ring on his finger, He's killed the fattened calf and he's thrown a celebration to say, my son is back in the family. The one who was lost is now found. There's change in his life. When you meet Jesus, there is change. Whereas I fear some of us are like the elder brother. We think we've met Jesus. We think that we love the Father. But instead of being inside at the celebration, we remain outside. That's where the elder religious brother is. He thinks, I've worked for all this. I've earned a party, but you're not throwing me one. Instead, you're squandering my inheritance. Like, my younger brother gets to inherit twice? That's mine! Because he, too, is after the father's stuff and not the father. I think a lot of us are about what religion can offer us. Structure, stability, can make us really good folks. But being really good folks without the affections of Christ, is worthless. Being a really good person, but not knowing Jesus, is worthless. It's pointless. When you meet Jesus, change happens. If you've met Jesus, you know that he came to you when you were lost. He pulled you out of the mud. He clothed you with his robe and his own righteousness. And he's welcomed you into the family of God as a son or a daughter. He's given you a completely new identity. He's given you His name so that you can call yourself Christian. And Paul is saying here, don't be deceived, Corinthians. 
those of you who claim Christ but have not had their lives changed, if your lives haven't changed, you haven't met Jesus because you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Saying, live in light of your new identity. Live in light of who Christ has made you. One loaf without leaven. A garden without kudzu. A people who have been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. He's saying, because that's true of you, because you've been redeemed, because you've been changed, you need to make wise judgments that reflect that truth. You make wise judgments so that your community as a church displays God's glory in the community among outsiders, those that don't know Jesus. Make Jesus look beautiful to them. Don't take your garbage into the courts and make Jesus look bad. You need to make judgment for the sake of those in the church. Forgiveness and reconciliation need to be practiced among us. Those are living pictures of the gospel. Repenting and forgiving. The whole of the Christian life is repentance. We need to judge for the sake of those who are deceiving themselves into thinking they're walking with Christ, but have not had their lives changed. All of these things are part and parcel to being God's people, to being the bride of Christ, to being the church. And so I want to leave you with verse 11. Some of you used to be like this. All of us used to be marked by sin. That list probably gets everyone. And if it doesn't, I'm sure we can find something. Some of you used to be like this, but God stepped in. You met Jesus. You were rescued. You were washed. You were set apart, sanctified as His people. You were justified, forgiven of your sin, credited with the righteousness of Christ by faith. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's wonderful news. As those who have been changed by Christ, we need to be willing to judge for the sake of Christ's name. And so we want to be the church and make wise judgments. We want to live as those who have been washed, who have been sanctified, and who have been justified. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the scandalous nature of the gospel that you who had no sin became sin so that we might become your righteousness that you were punished in our place so that we might inherit honor in your place Lord jesus we thank you that you have indeed risen from the dead in space and time it's not a fairy tale the resurrection actually happened and because it actually happened we can have certain hope that you are going to return and make this world into heaven. That you are going to make everything sad untrue. That we too are going to have resurrection bodies and inherit resurrection life together with you. Father, we, we thank you for this great mercy. We thank you for the cross. It sends us to clapping our hands along with the trees to shouting triumphantly of your victory over death or along with the rocks. Lord Jesus, we praise you together this morning.
And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.